I did an introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I guess it was two weeks before your break. So it's been a, it's been a few weeks. Let me just um, give you the brief summary. Very brief because we've got st- a lot of stuff to talk about tonight and I don't want to go too long. But um, basically the book of Ecclesiastes has been a really troubling book for Jewish, um, Jewish folks as well as for Christians over the centuries. And a lot of people have concluded that the book is either like Solomon in a backslidden condition, kind of running away from God and trying to live life without God in the picture and then coming back to his senses and saying, let me tell you what it was like to try and live without God. Um, Or it's a book, some people would say, where Solomon sort of takes on the guise of a non-believer and tries to look at life through that perspective. And the reason that is, is because there's so many bleak statements in the book that seem like the kinds of things that a Christian or a believer in God could never say, like meaningless, meaningless. All of life is meaningless. But what I talked about was this word, Hebrew word hevel, that's translated in the old King James, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, that word vanity, or in the NIV translation is translated meaningless, that that's probably not the best way to translate hevel. It's better probably overall to translate it um, with the idea of frustration, It's the word that talks about vapor or breath. And the idea is that life is not the way it should be anymore. But the book is not about life apart from God. It's about life on this world, in this world, after sin has entered into the world. The book of Ecclesiastes really is sort of helping you to understand wisdom to live after the fall, after sin has entered the world, after things, or as Dylan said, everything is broken. After everything is broken, how then do you live? That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. And there is actually one place in the New Testament where a reference is made to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's actually in Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about how the whole creation has been subjected to frustration. And that, that verse there is based upon the Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament that was in use at the time of Jesus and the early church, right? So it's a book about frustration. And yet, even though life is frustrating after the fall, and I don't need to preach about that very much because you all know it's true, um, even though life is frustrating, the book still calls us to take joy in the gifts that God gives us. So it basically is a book that challenges our perfectionism, that challenges are wanting to say, well, if life isn't perfect, then, you know, forget it. I'm just going to check out. It's a book that says you can't do that. Life in this world is life uh, full of tension. But you, you, you're, not, uh, you're not to just check out and, and just pretend that everything is completely broken and ruined. That God gives us good gifts even in the midst of that. As a matter of fact, the book says at one point, take joy in your wife and your work, all these frustrating days of life under the sun. That's the tension that is the Christian life. And while it may be easier, at least it seems to be easier for our hearts to completely check out and just say everything's terrible and to kill your hope and to kill your heart's longing for joy, you can't live that way. Rather, you are to fear God and keep his commandments. The very end of the book says, now all has been heard. What is the conclusion of the matter? Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Right? That's what this book is about. And one of, the th- one of the themes that runs all through this book is uh, Solomon at one point says, man has went in search of many schemes, but still could not straighten out what is crooked. Life is crooked. 
Life in this world after the fall is crooked. Everything we do doesn't measure up to what it should. Everything, even the good things that we do, leave us empty and broken and wanting more. There's always disappointment mixed in with everything. If you try to fix something, you create new problems. It's going to be that way after sin has entered the world. And yet, and yet, the greatest frustration, the greatest frustration is the fact of death. Now, Ecclesiastes talks about how man goes in search of many schemes. In other words, we try to invest our hearts in something that would seem to give us the promise of being able to live like the fall isn't as bad as it, as it really is. So sometimes we'll put our hope in money. And if I can get enough money, then I can be, be able to create a craft and existence, a little, carve out a little life for myself that I can basically insulate myself from the realities and the frustrations of life. But, but still, death comes. Uh, if I am able to you know, live for pleasure and I'm able to, to find all kinds of things that really delight my heart, um, whether it's good food or entertainment um, or sex or whatever it is, maybe I can insulate myself and go through life pretending that the fall didn't really happen. But again, death comes to those and eventually puts an end to your pleasure. The, the book of Ecclesiastes says that we go in search of all these different schemes to try to insulate ourselves from the fact that we live in a fallen world. And this isn't just non-Christians that do this. Christians do this. The book of Ecclesiastes is a wake-up call to the church to quit pretending that everything's fine and wonderful now that I know Jesus. This book says you can't do that. You have to be in touch with reality. And the reality that everybody has to deal with, whether you're a Christian or not, is the reality of death. It frustrates everything. Uh, you know, at one point in the Bible, in Psalm 19, God says that the creation, that the heavens are crying out, declaring, some translations say, God's glory. And, and the word that's used there in Psalm 19 is a very active word. You could even translate it that the heavens are preaching God's glory. All of creation was created in a way that it speaks something true. And, and that's true even after the fall has entered the world. The fact of death means and says to us that all is not right with the world. Now, we try to, we try to avoid that reality, especially young people. We try to not have to deal with that. But the, but the fact is, death is unavoidable. Ecclesiastes puts it this way, and I, I, I basically, the verses that we're going to look at tonight, I sort of sprinkled them in through your outline because I thought I could give you a page with some various verses from different places in Ecclesiastes as we follow this, this trail of death, so to speak, or I could sort of integrate them into the thing here. So they're in here. The first verse is here in Ecclesiastes 8.8, 8, and, it, and it really kind of gets at the heart of what we're talking about, what I've been saying about the frustration. It's this, no man has power over the wind to contain it. So no one has power over the day of his death. And, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not just that death brings frustration to everything. Whether it's, you know, making money, your relationships. I mean, in the ancient Middle East, the two things that you really would be tempted to put your hope in and would really mark you as a successful person, particularly a man, would be a long life and many descendants. 
And death comes in and, and ends both of those. Okay, you can have lots of descendants, but you're still going to die. You can have lots of money, but you're still going to die. doesn't matter what you do or what success you're able to attain in life, you are going to die. One of my favorite songwriters, John Hyatt, has this song, Slow Turning, it's from a record I just absolutely love. And he says, you know, um, how's it go? Here's the, um, here's the truth. You, you can learn to live with love or without it, but you're going to die. You're going to die for sure. Right? You're going to die for sure. Now, you can choose to live with love or without it. It doesn't matter. You're still going to die. The book of Ecclesiastes is going to speak to us tonight about how then are we supposed to live? If death frustrates everything, does that teach us anything about how we're to live? And even more importantly, does God deal with the frustration of death? Is there any hope? And again, it's not just that death is frustrating in and of itself, which it is. It's that death frustrates everything. It's at, at, you could put it this way. The reality of death seeps into everything that we do and puts a cloud over it. Death is the great leveler, and it should humble us. It's one of the first messages in the book of Ecclesiastes about death, is it should humble us. It doesn't matter how wise we are, death still takes us one day. Now, this is a pretty amazing thing for the Bible to say, because the Bible commends wisdom and says, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You should seek after wisdom. You should read God's word. You should interact with other believers and try to understand how then shall we live. And yet, the fact is, the book of Ecclesiastes says, even seeking wisdom will not, will not fully satisfy you. You're still going to be frustrated by the reality of death. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 says this, Both the wise man and the fool share the same fate. Now this is interesting. You'd be like, if you were writing a book to try to encourage people to follow your religion, would you really be this honest? Or would you say, you know what, if you come to Jesus and you believe what God has to say, you can have a wonderful life. Maybe some of you have heard sort of presentations of Christianity that have basically in, implied that, that if you actually really loved God and you really obeyed God and you really were sold out for Jesus, then you could somehow live a life that you would stay right in the center of God's will and you'd never have any frustrations or disappointments at all. Don't believe a word of it. The Bible never <coughs> promises that. The Bible says that whether you're wise or you're a fool, you both share the same fate. So Solomon says, Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, so it does have some benefit. Just as light is better than darkness, the wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is frustrating. For the wise man, like the fool, will not long be remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Death is the great leveler. My friend Stuart Latimer, who used to do RUF at Vanderbilt, used to put it this way. One corpse is no smarter than another. No matter how rich we are, we can't control what happens to all that we've worked for. 
And we can't even control who gets it when we die. Oh, yes, yeah, so we can, you know, leave a will. But ultimately, our power is, is very slight. That's the next little section, chapter 2. I, I, don't, I didn't put those verses down there, but that's what it says. And then in chapter 3, it says this, that both man and animals share the same fate. So lest you think that you're so high and mighty and wonderful and God's gift to the creation, you share the same fate as animals. All go to the same place. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20 says, All, man and animals, all go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. And even in that, see, chapter 3, verse 20, you hear that echo of the creation account and the, the, the idea that in the curse that came to mankind because sin entered the world, what, what part of the curse to man, to Adam, was you came from dust and to dust you will return. Ecclesiastes says that's right. Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament commentator, said this, because sin entered the world, because men and women fancied themselves gods, they will die like cattle. That's the sobering reality of the world we live in. Because mankind fancied themselves gods, they die like cattle. But God didn't make it to be that way. It was not God's intention for his world. We return to dust because sinners entered the world, because of the curse. And we should hate death. See, here's one of, the, one of the, the messages that we need to learn, the wisdom we need to learn tonight, which is that death is a great enemy. So often you hear the most ridiculous things in sermons, in the popular culture, on the news, whatever it is, when people die, people say the most ridiculous things. Things like, well, we know that such and such is finally home. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that death is a great enemy. Too many religious people think that what we're supposed to do when we think about death is we're supposed to think of it as basically, you know, sort of part of life. You, you hear that sometimes, right? Death is part of life. Ecclesiastes says, no. Death is a great enemy. Do you hate death? I don't know if, I imagine some of you have seen death firsthand. For a lot of you, you may not have really even tasted it yet, as far as friends, as far as family, but it won't be long. If you haven't tasted death close up, it won't be long. It's coming. And the Bible says Part of our calling, part of our, the reality we need to deal with is this reality. We don't help ourselves or anybody else when the Christian church is naive or romantic about the reality of death. When did you begin to hate death? For me, I, you know, kind of quick succession, my senior year, in high school, a friend of mine, a sophomore, just a kid who was just like one of those kids that just the love of Christ was so powerful in his life. He had such a ministry impact. I was a senior. He was a sophomore. I, I, I saw this guy, Paul Kane, a friend of mine who was really involved in our Young Life group, a guy that just obviously had, had God's hand upon him. I don't know how else to put it. Goes down on a mission trip to Mexico with the youth group from our church, is riding in a car, is killed in a car accident. Meaningless, meaningless, frustrating. In April of my senior year in high school, my friend Jamie Griffin, who was going to be my roommate at college, 
was stabbed 80 times by a friend of ours because our other friend, Michael Whittlesley, wanted his car to go to Atlantic City for the weekend to gamble and Jamie wouldn't give it to him. Right? My friend, my future roommate, stabbed 80 times because somebody wanted a car? Right? When did you begin to hate death? I I was thinking about You know, Wendy and I, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. And soon after we, I guess it was was after we were engaged that her grandmother was diagnosed with leukemia. She didn't live to see Wendy get married. And we hate that. We hate that. Death should be hated. It's a great enemy. When Jesus faced death of his friend Lazarus, in John chapter 11, Lazarus, who he knew that he was going to raise from the dead. Still, the Bible says, he, well, the Bible, uses, the, the Greek has this word that's really difficult to, to translate. Um, I, I think the translation, the NIV says, Jesus wept. That's a very weak word. The, the word really is the word used for a war horse, snorting barely being held back as it's about ready to plunge into battle. It's a a word that expresses deep anguish and rage all mixed together. This is Jesus as he approaches death, even knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus in just a few moments. Death is a great enemy and it is to be hated. God wants us to face the reality of death rather than take refuge in all these different distractions and schemes. You know, it's interesting. They don't do this much anymore. I don't think they do it anywhere. But for years, for hundreds and hundreds of years, churches always built the pathway to the front door right through the middle of the cemetery. They did that very intentionally. It's really a fairly recent phenomenon where we've tried to push death to the sidelines. For, for really most of history, and, and in most cultures in the world, people died at home with the family around them. We live in a culture where we try, to, we try to pretend that death doesn't really happen. My wife used to work at Vanderbilt Hospital, and I like to say to people, do you know that nobody dies at Vanderbilt Hospital? It's wonderful. They should, they should build an advertising campaign around this. People expire at Vanderbilt Hospital. That's the word they use. They expire, right? I don't know, right? Have you been over there? Yeah. People don't die. We don't even want to use the word. P.D. James says that death has taken over sex as the great unmentionable. It's the thing we don't talk about. That is not a Christian approach to death, and it's not wisdom. Churches used to want you to walk through the cemetery so that when you went in the front door, you knew that what we're dealing with now is a matter of life and death. It's reality. We should be sobered by death and face it. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says this. Listen to this. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. 
It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes does not say you should just go moping around all the time. There actually is a strong theme in the book about the good gifts of God that give us joy and pleasure even in the midst of the frustration. Yet, what Ecclesiastes 7 is saying is that there is wisdom to be derived from facing the reality of death and not checking out. This passage teaches us death is our destiny and that should affect the way we live. Death challenges us to pretend we're not immortal and Christians of all people should never be romantic or naive about death. And in addition, in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, the young, this is all y'all, the young are particularly exhorted to think about death. In chapter 12, verse 1 says this, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Now that, if, I, I didn't put all the other verses in between verse 1 and verse 7, but the picture here in Ecclesiastes 12 is the picture of old age. And the day of trouble is not just necessarily a day of trial, but the day when old age has come upon you and you have limitations and lack of freedom that you had when you were young. Ecclesiastes 12, this is the last chapter in the book, the beginning of the conclusion of the book says, you should particularly remember your creator in the days of youth. And then in verse 7, what closes this little section says this, and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. In other words, remember your creator and remember that you will one day be dust. People all over the place Philosophers from Plato to Hegel, N.T. Wright says, I put it on here, that we should think about death and, and death should affect the way we think about everything else. And Christian theologians should rise up and say, amen. Okay? But we try all kinds of schemes to ignore the fact that we live with death facing us, don't we? Uh, I love this quote. I don't know who said it, but I love it. Most men die inch by inch while playing at little games. And my prayer is that that would not be what's written on your tombstone. And it's not too late to say, I'm going to take this to heart. I'm going to think about what would God have me to do? The Bible says in the Psalms, Lord, teach us to number our days. And not to pretend that we've got all the time in the world because we don't. Does that, does that, does that affect what you give your life to? It should. What kind of schemes do we, do we pursue to try to escape the reality of death? Well, we try to ignore it. <laughs> I said this, you know, in our culture, we try to do this, but we do it in the church as well. Uh, we try and explain it away as natural. One of the sort of classic quotes about this, Sir Francis Bacon. It's as natural to die as to be born. And to a little infant, perhaps the one is as painful as the other. To that, Christians say, absolutely not. No. Death is not natural. And if you've ever watched somebody die, you know that. I don't need to convince you. If you've ever been to a funeral, if you've ever seen an open casket, I don't care how they dress them up, I don't care what kind of makeup they do, it's eerie. And it should be. Because God is saying to us through that, all is not right with the world, and don't you dare pretend that it is. We can try and take control over death. This is, 
you know, the sort of the pursuit of the existentialists. It's very, if, if you don't know about existentialism, it comes to you in so many movies. The idea is that the only thing you can really do is choose the manner of your own death. Take control of it. The classic example, Thelma and Louise. You guys remember that movie? Thelma and Louise. They, you know, rightly, we should sympathize with these women who've been taken advantage of, who everything is against them. Injustice prevails. And yet, the triumph at the end of the movie where these two women grab hands, hold up their arms together in triumph, and drive off a cliff to their death as they say, we finally won. You can control us no longer. We will be in control of this one thing. For a lot of people, that seems heroic. But it doesn't matter whether you choose the manner of your own death, you're still dead. And whatever meaning or purpose you think you've gained from that is ended. Who cares if you choose the manner of death, if you're death, if you're dead? We try to romanticize death away. This, you see this all the time. N.T. Wright talks about um, this revival of what he calls low-grade popular nature religion with elements of Buddhism. Um, and he talks about how at, at Princess Diana's death, you know, people left all these kind of messages. And you saw the same kinds of things with 9-11. And he, one particular message with Diana said this. Basically, somebody wrote a message from Diana to all these grieving people in her own voice saying, I did not leave you at all. I'm still with you. I'm in the sun and in the wind. I'm even in the rain. I did not die. I'm with you all. Or it's like the theology of the Lion King, Right or lots of Disney movies, right? But this is what a lot of people in our culture believe. And here's the thing. A lot of Christians are just as confused. And, and we think, well, you know, I just can't imagine my loved one not being able to look down upon us and, and still be able to hear what we're doing or still be able to guide me. All of that is romantic nonsense, right? And it doesn't really help anybody for Christians to perpetuate that sort of thing and not be clear. C.S. Lewis wrote about this as he mourned his wife's death. And people would try and tell him those sorts of things. And he said, what pitiable cant to say, she will live forever in my memory. Live, he says, that's exactly what she won't do. You might as well think like the old Egyptians that you can keep the dead by embalming them. Will nothing persuade us that they are gone? As if I wanted to fall in love with my memory of her? An image in my own mind, it would be a sort of incest. Chew on that. Sometimes we try to laugh at death and mock it. I'll never forget a friend of mine in college who took up smoking, and I was like, Scott, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, anybody can face cancer. or Anybody, you know, can quit smoking, but it takes a real man to face cancer. And we make those kind of silly jokes. But come on, death is nothing to be laughed at. But here's the thing. Those schemes don't work. But here's the good news tonight. You don't need those schemes to deal with the frustration of death. Because Jesus himself has dealt with the frustration of death. You remember, Ecclesiastes is about wisdom living after the fall has entered into the world. And Ecclesiastes 12.7 gives us just a glimmer of hope that death is not the end, when it says that the spirit of man returns to God who gave it. It's just that little glimmer that death is not the ultimate end at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. But of course, I hope you know that that theme 
that you just, it, you know, you might say, here it is in seed form. But as you go through the rest of the Bible, and particularly as we who live after the death and resurrection of Christ can see, Christianity offers a real, a real answer to the frustration of death because Jesus died and was raised again. I mean, the question, you know, that the, the Genesis asks, that Ecclesiastes echoes is how can we get back to the place of life? How can we get back to the garden and eat of the tree of life? Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned against God? They were kicked out of the garden, the place of communion with God. And do you remember, do you remember that there was left there a flaming, an angel with a flaming sword to keep them from getting back to the tree of life so that they would not continue to eat of that tree of life and remain forever in rebellion to God. But one of the messages that was, is, is there in that, in that story is that f- to get back to the garden, get back to the place of, of wholeness and healing and fellowship, somebody has to die. The, the, the great tragedy of our culture is that people believe in our culture in justification by death, that if you die, of course you go to heaven. You're justified merely by the fact that you die. The Bible nowhere teaches that. Instead, the Bible says, yes, to get back to God, somebody has to die. Do you know that in the temple, in the Jewish temple, there was an area called the Holy of Holies, right? The Holy of Holies really is the embodiment of what the Garden of Eden was about. It's the place where you can meet with God face to face. And yet, separating everybody and the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies was this huge curtain, several feet thick, 40 feet high, and embroidered upon it were palm trees and a sword. The imagery there is to to remind you that to get to the Holy of Holies, somebody, to get back to that garden, the palm tree, somebody has to go under the sword. And do you remember that when Jesus died, on Mount Calvary, that curtain was torn. Now you may think like that sort of that that little wall hanging over there, torn. No, this is a several foot thick, 40 foot high embroidery that was torn from the top to the bottom to show that God was the one who had opened the way for us to get back to what we wanted. And you see, the death of Jesus is just the beginning Here's the amazing good news of the gospel. And here's the sad thing. So many Christians have such, have such a, a, a small hope because they think that, 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 that what Jesus came to do was to die and go to heaven so that when you die, you can go be with him in heaven. But brothers and sisters, or if you're trying to figure out what Christianity is about, let me tell you, that is not worthy of being called the hope of the gospel. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Jesus did not die so that we could just go live forever a disembodied existence. That's still death. Death is the ripping apart of your soul from your body. And Jesus died to put to death death itself. Jesus did not die so that we could live forever disembodied. That's still death. There for a season will be, if you die before Jesus comes back again and you're a Christian, 
Your soul will go to be in his presence. But that's not the end and that's not the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope and what we know, because Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation that God is bringing, is that is that we will be physical for all eternity, that this creation will be healed. As a matter of fact, the Bible always links these two things together. The whole creation being healed and restored. The new heavens and the new earth come down in Revelation 21 and 22. They come down. This world is transformed. Our hope is solidly physical. It's not disembodied and spiritual. In other words, here's what I'm saying. If if death is the ultimate frustration, then the, the idea that Jesus died so that we could go be in heaven as souls is not a sufficient answer to the frustration of death. But that's not the answer that Christianity gives. That's not what Jesus died for. Jesus died to give a full answer to the problem of death, not a halfway answer where your soul is finally set free from its body and goes to be with Jesus forever. No. What Jesus died for was to start death working backwards, as C.S. Lewis says so wonderfully. Or as Tolkien says, um, Sam Ganji says in uh, The Lord of the Rings, will everything sad now become untrue? And the Christian answer is yes. And it's already begun. It's already begun. And the fact of the physical resurrection of Jesus means that God has not given up on his commitment to make his glory spread as far as the waters cover the earth. Adam and Eve were put into the garden and called to work to take the garden, the cultivation, to the whole cosmos. And God is still committed to that. And one day, if you're a Christian, you will be raised with a body that will not suffer or be broken or be able to be touched by death or sin or sickness so that you can get on with the job that God created mankind for, of bringing his glory to every every bit of creation, even beyond this world. That's a glorious, a glorious future. And here's what's fascinating about this. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes so far as to say, he doesn't say at all what we think he would say. In first chapter, in first Corinthians 15, 58, Paul is talking about the resurrection. It's the longest chapter in the Bible about the bodily resurrection of Christ and about how our bodies will be raised. Okay, and I'm going to do a convo on this. So I'm just giving you a little hint here right now. But what Paul derives sort of application from that, he doesn't say it's a good thing that Jesus was raised from the dead so that we know that we can go be with him in heaven someday. No, actually, what Paul says is. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast and work hard because somehow all of the work that you do for God, building his kingdom in the here and now, will somehow come over into the new heavens and the new earth. None of it will be wasted. That's really fascinating because we think, well, you know, Jesus died and and we're supposed to save souls and get them up to heaven with him. And, you know, the work that we're supposed to do here is just trying to get people to understand and love Jesus so they can go to heaven when they die. That's not what Paul says at all. Paul says you're supposed to work hard bringing justice and healing to this world. And what you do in that regard for the Lord and for his kingdom will not be in vain. 
Somehow, mysteriously, it will be caught up and reaffirmed, as the words uh, N.T. Wright uses, in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I don't know how to explain that to you. All I know is Paul makes that application. The fact of the physical resurrection of Christ means, and part of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the dead that we say we believe when we confess the Apostles' Creed, is that you will be resurrected and that the work that you do for God will somehow matter. If you write a beautiful song, somehow it will carry over. And you see this in the end of the book of Revelation, where it says that the kings of all the earth bring their splendor into the city. And yet it's, all these things are without stain or blemish. What glory. I mean, everything that we do for God now, we say, well, it's still, it's still tainted by sin. How glorious to know that the, that the things that you wished were better will be made up and made better at some point. Now, that's a radical idea because most Christians basically think that this world is just temporary. I'm just passing through. There's no point to doing anything here unless it gets people to heaven someday. The Bible actually does never draw that conclusion. It actually says that because God is so committed to physical reality, to his good creation, that he's going to remake it He's going to remake it. And the, and the work that we put in to bringing his kingdom now, here, as a church, as, 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 as believers, will count and somehow matter in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I know that's a radical idea and a new idea for a lot of people. But it's there. It's everywhere in the Bible. God's original intention will not be thwarted. The church is to be the tangible expression here and now that God has not given up on this world, but rather he has given himself for this world. And God will not rest until this world is made into the glory that he wants it to be, right? That, that should fill us with hope that death will be utterly vanquished. That whatever death frustrates now will not stand. And while we are sobered by death, it is a great enemy, it is a defeated enemy. And we look in the face of death, we see an enemy that cannot stand and will not stand because God is committed and has already dealt the death blow to death. And he's called us to be his people working to bring the reality and the power of the resurrected life of Jesus to every aspect where the death coming from sin has screwed things up. That's a big, that's a tall order. It's a tall order, but it's what God's committed to. (laughs) And that means that we can, we can work and know that he is with us. Let's pray together.